If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. On this episode of Damsels and the DMs. If we think that we deliver the baby, we, you know, we don't deliver babies. We deliver pizzas and we deliver speeches. Babies are born by their mothers. We help them birth their babies. I'm trying hard to not to get the language straight in the whole process of birthing so that we as women can reclaim our very deepest heritage. This message is intended as a reminder that we are not licensed professionals, not psychiatrists or psychologists. If you have a serious problem, please seek professional help. The National Suicide Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. There's some damsels in the DM. Yes, queen. <laughs> Tell us what's the vibe. There's some damsels in the DM. Please tell us what's the vibe. DMs, DMs, yeah, we see them, yeah, we read them. DMs, DMs, we don't need them, we just leave them. Please, yeah. It's going down in the DMs. Bye. Hello and welcome to Damsels in the DMs. I'm Lauren. And I'm Ash. Ash, okay, so I know you're getting ready to go on another vacation. And I've been thinking a lot because we ask everybody their morning routines on this podcast. What are your non-negotiables while you're traveling that you still need to implement as part of your routine? I love that you asked me this because I had no morning routine whatsoever (laughs) on vacation. Like when I tell you this was the most like routineless vacation the only routines that I had that I was I kept doing was wash my face and do my dental hygiene and do my skincare, obviously. Because she's always I, a dentist at heart. I'm a, I am a dentist at heart. <laughs> that was it, dude. Like, it was so weird because this vacation taught me a lot of things about myself. And it was a very long vacation. It was three weeks of nonstop, like not even coming back home, just changing from place to place. I learned so many things about myself that I will share at a later date. But, you know, like, like, okay, number one, I need a routine. And we all know that. And not having a routine can really affect me mentally, physically, spiritually, that I that needs to be I'm going on my next vacation. That's like a 10 day long vacation. And I'm going to make sure 
that I'm at least like doing my breath work or meditating or something, even if it's five minutes, just meditate in the morning before I start my day. Yeah. I need meditation. So I totally relate to that, especially if I have something important coming up, like an important conversation or important call, I need to meditate. I, it really clears my head, makes a big difference. How have you been finding, so you've been in the north of, in the Northern California the north area. north of California. <laughs> in the north of California. You've been there for a while now. It almost feels like you've moved. <laughs> I know, but it's been so nice. Like the view here is so beautiful and I've just been like outside, like hiking and golfing and um, taking Brian's family's boat out. Like, so it's just been like very restorative. Unlike you, I've been very much in a routine with like journaling and meditation and um, exercising. So yeah, you've been having a very wholesome month. Very wholesome. Very wholesome. Hanging out with everybody's families really can't complain. But yeah. my meditation journey out here is about to come to an end because um, I'm going back to LA next week and then going to New York and have a lot of really fun projects coming up. So I really can't complain, but then school starts. So, yeah. but I yeah. love summer. So I'm very sad about it. I'm glad that you got a month to just reset, like rest and digest before the craziness starts of being in New York city. Number one, which is crazy as it is just being in a big city and then Columbia starting again, it's your second year, which is insane. I know. And then, you know, I, I don't even know what second year is going to look like for you, but I know it's going to be a lot harder and a lot more things going on. But a lot more fun. I know you know so much. You're about to start school too. Yeah, I am. We're starting school together. I it's know. It's going to be a lot. It's going to be fun. I know. I can't wait to hear what your schedule is, mostly so I know for scheduling podcasts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm really crossing my fingers that Tuesdays and Thursdays are free for you because those are good days for me. Okay, I hope so too. Yeah, thank you. Just put that energy out into the world for me. I'm going to. And if I get any say over my schedule, I'm going to make sure that Tuesdays and Thursdays, well, at least my evenings are going to be free. The one thing that I am looking forward to going back to New York for is just to be on a closer schedule to freaking Paris. Let me tell you that. Because I've been taking calls with you, people in Berlin and Finland. And I, I got up at four for a call, seven, eight. And I am just not a morning person. Not a morning person. But this is just going to teach you to be a more of a morning person. You know, I think mm -hmm. it's good for this whole. You know what's crazy, though? I've been waking up at like 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. every day on well, vacation. Yeah, you've been on vacation. But even here, when I'm trying to wake up like earlier, but my alarm goes off at eight, which is for me in LA, eight is like I'm late. But here I'm like eight. Oh my God, it's so early. I can't. I had a, a hot yoga, a Moda yoga session this morning at 10. I was like, 10 in the morning. How am I going to make it to my class? I'm glad that you're checking out the Paris exercise places, though. Those are good for your routine. Yeah, I've been doing class pass, so that's really like it's it's been a nice way to get to know the city and get to know different studios here, which is really cool. Anyway, speaking of great ways to live a well-lived life, we have the author of A Well-Lived Life, Dr. Gladys, on the podcast today, who is an 102-year-old doctor, mental health expert, and overall genius, I would say. She became a doctor during World War II, obviously lived through the Civil Rights Movement, through the Vietnam War, was born only a few years after women got the right to vote. And she has a lot of really interesting takes on 
the way that women have evolved since then. And, you know, the way that we look at birthing babies and her take on how babies are delivered in this country and how women, you know, really have such a power in being able to carry children and how now that we also have careers to balance. And that was something that she, you know, also had to deal with when women were viewed very differently at the time when she was becoming a mom. It's just really interesting to hear all of her perspective. And obviously she has 102 years of wisdom. So that's pretty special. Yeah. And we know that this is not a typical damsels episode since we are more focused in the industry, the entertainment industry, but there's a lot of takeaways from this episode because how often do you get to hear from a woman of 102 years? And also, like you said, Lauren, like, the, you know, women power, all of that going in, you can take that into your career right now with acting and producing, directing. Like, there were so many close, like, uh, resemblances, yeah. similarities between her path and what we are trying to do here as well. Well, yeah. And even just thinking about how like, you know, Greta Gerwig is now, I believe, like the top grossing director and people don't even talk about Margot Robbie because, you know, Barbie was like a stereotypical role that women would have played. But Margot Robbie was the lead producer on that member of the PGA. I'm a nerd on this because I'm studying producing, but like she did everything to get that film created. And people, if, you know, let's just say Barbie wins the Oscar, people will see her go up and they'll assume that she's accepting an Oscar for her role as Barbie. But if it won best film, she would be accepting it because of her role as the producer, because producers are the ones who accept the role for um, best picture. And that's because they're the ones who bring the project to fruition. So, you know, Margot Robbie, like, besides being beautiful and an incredible actress, she also had so much power in bringing such a insanely pivotal project to the world. So I think just like talking to Dr. Gladys and hearing about the strides that women have made, it's only more powerful in today's era where we're talking about a picture that has been such a girl power. Did you even get to see it in Paris? Yeah, I did. Okay, I'm great. Working. Was it French? It was freezing. Uh, no, it was an English, thank God. But there was French subtitles really annoying. I'm like, you're getting in the way. I'm not seeing the whole picture. So. <laughs> this but is an anyway. American movie. There should be no French subtitles. My dad tried to see Oppenheimer in Nicaragua and they wouldn't let him because it was fully in Spanish. Wow. So he had to see Barbie. <laughs> but he I'm seeing Oppenheimer tonight. Oh, I want to see Oppenheimer, but we're trying to do more outdoorsy things to maximize our time here. I, I feel that. Also, I do want to say one thing about Dr. Gladys. The one thing I loved about her the most was offline. When when we were leaving, she said, love you. <laughs> she what was just such a joy. I did see you almost cry when she said that. But truly, she was a joy. She's lived so many lives. And like, I mean, even just her whole um, history with India, like pretty unreal. Yeah, it was also really nice to connect on that. After that, I went to an Indian restaurant last night and had dinner, at an Indian dinner. It was wow, really you cool were Indian inspired? Food. Yeah, I was inspired. That's great. Yeah. I hope you're finding good restaurants in Paris because sometimes, you yeah. know, the wrecks that you've had previously, like, I, I just want you to expand your knowledge yeah. of the Paris restaurants. Yeah, I'm going to. Okay, great. Thanks for that. Yeah, you're so <laughs> Anyway, it was such a pleasure to talk to Dr. Gladys, and I am just really excited for everybody to be able to get the wisdom that we gained from her. So let's get into it. 
Let's do it. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm happy to be here. I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona. Where are you? Wow. Well, we are all over. I'm in Northern California, typically in New York, but I'm here for the summer. And Josh is actually in Paris. I just moved to Paris like a month ago. All right. Well, please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became to be the Dr. Gladys and your journey to becoming an author. Well, do you have 102 years? (laughs) (laughs) We hope. (laughs) My parents were medical missionaries, osteopathic missionaries in North India. And I was born there. In fact, my mother went into labor with me at the Taj Mahal. I think she's kind of a drama queen or something. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I like that. Anyway, so I grew up until I was 15 when I came to the States to go to college and then to medical school. And from then on, I had the beautiful heritage of having parents with my mother, who was a physician in 1913 when, you know, women were not physicians, but she was, she became an osteopathic physician. She had to, she was kind of like my dad's baggage because she went on his passport because she (laughs) was a non-entity in spite of the fact that she had the training and everything and she went with it. So it's that kind of a a deep roots in the field of medicine beyond what conventional medicine has thought that it was required to do in that I understood at a very young age that there was more to this whole process than just getting rid of diseases because I watched my parents go into the jungles of North India with no equipment particularly, a a trunk in which they had some things, but they didn't have any x-ray machines. They didn't have any really important kind of equipment. What they did have was hearts full of love. And with those with their outreach being at that level, they were ever over. They were able to contact the people who who came to them at that level, and it it um, it became part of who I was, and who I intended to grow up into becoming. <laughs> so. I'm old, I'm of Indian descent. I actually have never lived there, but I have visited a lot. And my parents grew up there. But we have a whole, like our family is very into holistic medicine, you know, Ayurveda and homeopathic medicine. Right. And I am studying, I'm doing a health and wellness course that's holistic, uh, holistic nutrition. I'm very, very curious uh, to know, like, what is your secret for maintaining a well-lived long life? Well, I've written up six secrets that are are important for each one of us to take and have them become what's right for us. Because I don't have any right to tell a physician within you how 
how she should act, I do have a right to tell her what she, what I think would be good for her to do. But what she does with it is her choice and her will. And so, you know, we as human beings are the only creatures on this earth who have choice and free will. And so as we can use those to our own benefit and for the benefit of those around us, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. What I think we're supposed to be doing. (laughs) What inspired you to put all of that down into your book, A Well-Lived Life? Well, I had written books before about medicine. And the last one was Living Medicine Beyond Holistic. In other words, taking the medical field into the other part of life's existence so that we could incorporate our medical work in with that. But beyond that, there was the understanding that there is a very in well individually conscripted process which hmm. as individuals have which is what does the real healing but it's the way it's done is with love activating life so is as as if we try to do this healing without love it just don't work you know <laughs> it's just it may do something a little bit here and a little bit there and help some, but it, the deep healing that goes with our awareness of our true humanity and then allowing that true humanity to be the physician within us, which becomes partners with the physician on the outside. Hmm. My oldest son is a retired orthopedic surgeon. When he came through Phoenix, ready to start his practice in Del Rio, Texas, he stopped to spend time with us. And he said, Mom, you know, I'm real scared. He said, I'm going into the world. I'm going to have people's lives in my hands. I don't know if I can handle that. And I said to him, well, Carl, If you think you're the one that does the healing, you have a right to be scared. But you can understand that this work that you've been taught, orthopedic surgery, is huge. If I have something that's out of kilter, I want somebody who's been trained to do the physical part of of correcting that and working with it, which is all the training that you have. It's amazing. And we people need that. But the actual healing part of that comes about you when you turn that over to the person who has within them the life-love connection, which is a, which I call the physician within them, which then does the healing. Because, you know, you can do all that you want to do, Carl, but if they don't want to take that, and work with it. Yeah, Kuchpurwane, you know, it just doesn't matter. It's not going to go anyplace. Hmm. How did he respond when you said that? 
he went down and did his work and he's now a retired <laughs> orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> I guess your advice holds up pretty well then. And now he's a master gardener and he has solar panels on his property and he has little donkeys and, and he has grandkids and, you know, I mean, he's grown, he's done what he needed to do. And now he's in that part of his life where he's, doing the things that he feels are helping Mother Earth. You have so much wisdom to offer. And, you know, it's so beautiful listening to you talk and how you can make such an impact on people. I'm curious if there were any mistakes that you made along the way that led you to have some bigger lessons that you could share within your 102 years. Yeah, well, they happen very often, but the... The one that I'll, I'll talk about is the whole process of birthing. Hmm. I'm so concerned about the way we birth babies. And uh, we call it labor. And we think that we as physicians or midwives have to deliver the baby. I think that's wrong. I think, I think, I think what happened, and it happened during my lifetime, I started medical school just as World War II started. And in the process of learning about birthing, we somehow thought that the import, most important thing in the process of birthing was to help the mother get through the process without feeling anything. So we had what we called twilight sleep. We totally anesthetized the mother as she went into labor. I had my first two sons and didn't know for for 24 hours after they were born that I'd had a son. It was that whole process. I, I think what happened is women for eons have understood that it's painful to have babies, but it's okay if you tune in with it and you understand what's going on. And this is a this pain becomes what it is. I mean, so it hurts, you know. But that's, I think, <laughs> I really think what happened is when men stepped into the field of obstetrics, they couldn't get this. They couldn't understand that whole whole issue that we as women understand about, oh, you know, menstrual pain and all that kind of stuff. There are things that are just, they just plain hurt and you deal with it. You live with it. You do it. So they thought that the big, th biggest thing in the whole process of birthing was to have the mother not feel any pain. So what happens then is that we, as the ones who were working with the mother, had to deliver the, pain, deliver the baby. And we put on forceps and we delivered the baby. And I got very good at that. I, could, I was able to deliver... a after coming head in a breech baby. You know, I mean, you learn these techniques, you do what you are taught, and that's the way it was. And what has happened as we have, is that we have taken away from the woman her very birthright, which was birthing her own baby. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't need to help with the birthing. That's one thing. But if we think that we deliver the baby 
we, you know, we don't deliver babies. We deliver pizzas and we deliver speeches. Babies are born by their mothers. We help them birth their babies. I'm trying hard to not to get the language straight in the whole process of birthing so that we as women can reclaim our very deepest heritage, which is our ability to birth babies. How have you seen women's place in the world change, I guess? Because, you know, I've heard in exactly what you're talking about that when men became more um, involved in the birthing of babies, that there was some fear that they may have because of the power that women carry because of their ability to bring another human being into the world. <laughs> Which I think is truly something that people don't talk about, like what a power that is that women have. How have in your 102 years you've seen, I guess the power that women carry, are you seeing more women owning that today? What's different? Well, let me tell you, I work a lot with my dreams. And oh, about 10 years or so ago, I woke up one morning with a dream that was just a big crash. And when I woke up, I was sort of in the dream and out of the dream like in that state. And I saw myself in the high Himalayas where I grew up. I, you know, I went to school in Landar, Sudi, and all the way through, anyway. But I saw myself in, in the valley, in the high Himalayas, and on the right-hand side of the, of the valley, there was a young woman splayed out on the ground, just barely breathing. On the left-hand side, there was a huge man in armor and just, just a great big man, strong man, splayed out in the same position. And the voice that I heard said these two forces have been fighting each other with fists for eons of time. It's time that they stopped that and they came together with their fingers and did the job that they need to do in their either in their positions. And then when I really woke up with the whole thing, I realized that the girl was on the right-hand side, which is the masculine side, and the guy was on the left-hand side, which is the feminine side. And we, in our wisdom, had gotten the things all mixed up so that we thought we women were supposed to be more like the men and the men didn't know what to do with the women and all of this. The battle of the sexes was going on and actually just about killing each other. We just didn't understand anything about what it was all about. So I had this friend, I, so I'm trying to inter interpret the dream and figure out how we put this into our context. And I had this friend who was, she understood, well, she had gotten messages and stuff. And her name, she was in Virginia Beach and she said, so we started talking about this whole business about manifesting things and so on. And she says, you know, I think there's a new word that she says I would like to start thinking about. We talk a lot about manifestation because that's like Jacob's Ladder. You get your degree, you do the practice, you buy a house, 
you you know you do something you actually manifest something and that's masculine that's what you they're supposed to be doing but we as women do what she termed as femifest that's manifesting we as women do what she called femifesting she said we don't climb jacob's ladder we go up a spiral and we can be up on the fifth rung of the spiral and know what's going on in the second rung. We can sit, stand in the kitchen with one baby in one arm and take care of what the kids do on the floor. You know, I mean, it's that ability to know what's going on. And in reality, a pregnancy is like that. Mm. The, the sperm and the ovum come together the sperm, the ovum can't do anything until the sperm activates it. So the sperm comes in as love activating life. And so the whole process of life as birthing and so on. But, and, and then, then the, that entity has the privilege and the mother has the privilege and, and responsibility of understanding that everything she eats, the baby eats. Everything she says, the baby knows. What she thinks, the baby knows. In other words, during the pregnancy time, she is totally helping manifest a whole new entity. But that new entity can't really do anything until they are born and take their first breath which is when they manifest. I mean, it's this, this flow of life and love which are integral to the whole process of our human beings. And, and it's when we can try to get that in the right position and under, understand that we could birth a baby for 10 months and not manifest anything until that baby takes its first breath. You know, it's that reality that we do it together. One isn't better than, one is not less than. We are equal part partners in this amazing gift that we have of life. I want to go back to what you said. I think you mentioned that you started med school during World War II. What was that like? What was that experience like when the world changed like for the worst? How, how, what was your experience going through med school and, you know, like our version of World War II in our generation is nothing compared to what you went through during that time. Our version is COVID, you know, and our school stopped and we went online. But during that time, you're in a, a war. So I would just, I'm curious to how everything changed for you. The whole world changed at that time. When yeah. women went to work because their husbands went to war. However, I had the privilege of being, getting into the only women's medical school in the country, women's medical college, which was 
really the things we learned about when I was in medical school were pretty much everything about getting rid of and uh, like getting rid of a disease, getting rid of pain, getting rid of something. There was very little emphasis on supporting the life force itself, although we knew we had to, and we had all the ways in which we were able to have women go to work and, and get the babies to, you know, I mean, the whole pattern of mothering and, and women's position shifted during that time. And women actually became soldiers too. They, be, be, they, you know, they stepped into the military too. So it was a, it was a total transfer of things. However, even when I got out of medical school, was which was in 46, just when the war ended, women still weren't accepted. I When I started my internship in Cincinnati at Deaconess Hospital, they never had a woman there before as a doctor. And so they, they didn't have any place for me when I was on call at night. So I got the x-ray table and a blanket and a pillow, which I wasn't upset about because I knew that they didn't, they, they had nothing else. And I was very glad to be able to have that, to get the, because I was after getting the training, getting the licensing. I was, I didn't know it then, but I was very intent on manifesting the whole process of what my education, which I had manifested, had brought me to the point of doing. And so it, it was, those were times of change, but you know, when when you're going for something that is beyond that that spot, you put up with stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't tell you when we when we began talking about holistic medicine, the names I would call, I wouldn't mention it on you know, we were co- totally wackadoodle people who were thinking about stuff that just didn't exist, except it, it did exist. And it was there, and it, and people began to hear about it. You know, in fact, when we started the American Holistic Medical Association, it took us two years to figure out how to spell holistic, <laughs> because we were trying to find the root word, which is health, healing, and holy. So it had to start with mage. So for us, the ones who were starting this, working with this. It was a very important concept that we had to really put into action enough that people were beginning to work with it. And then, then, and then you know where it's gone, the whole concept. It was, it was really good. I had learned, my, I had watched my parents do in India and integrating that into what it was we were doing here. In fact, I learned Hindustani before I learned English. <laughs> so my sister and I were in our 90s. And we'd be talking and we'd do this. And we'd talk more and we'd do this. And all of a 
all of a sudden we stopped and we said, why do we do that? And we looked at each other and we said, who do we know that just did that all the time? You know, and we said, together we said, mama did it. Okay. All right. If she did it, why did she do that? And so we're, we're thinking, and together we both said, oh, kuchparwale, it doesn't matter. And, and, and we both laughed and we said, that's it, you know. She was able to take a lot of the things that, like somebody says something mean to you, okay. You can say, oh, that hurt me, that hurt my feelings. And you take it right in and you're so hurt and it's so bad. And it's so sad, you know, and you go on with that. Or you can just take, and it's just, it's just a kuchwarwade. It doesn't matter. It's just talk, you know. So it was our finding that word was very important to us to understand what it was that our mother had, you know, she had lived through and done so that we had, it's so much in part of our whole being that all our lives we had done this. And we, there were lots of things like that. So I didn't have a bed. The guys had a bed. They could, I could sleep on it. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing of accepting what it is because, because your goal is what it is. See, I have this, this kind of idea. I don't, it, it's just my idea. I think what, God created God, whoever God is for all of us. When God created the earth, it was beautiful. And it, it just, things were lovely and everything got. And then he created the human being. And he said to the, us as humans, now here you are, you have choice. You're the only thing in the whole world that has choice. You have free will and you have free choice. I therefore give you dominion over the earth. And we, as such bright human beings, thought he said, I give you dominance over mm. the earth. And we have created such hardship for Mother Earth because we thought we had the right to dominate and take what we needed and wanted, you know, I don't know, mm. all this stuff. But I think it's, I think what we're looking for now, I think we're in, in a new time of change and, and growth as, as true humans. I think we're reaching for our true humanity. I think that's what E.T. was reaching for when he was wanting to go home, you know, he wanted to go home. I think in our heart of hearts, we are really reaching for our true humanity. That's why we're beginning to understand the importance of life and love together, that they, mm. they are essential for each other. At what point in your career did you become a mom? Well, <laughs> I was pregnant with my first son when I was during my internship, I, my Bill and I, my husband and I, decided we wanted six children out of the blue. Six children. We want six children. Okay. <laughs> so you got to start someplace. 
And I thought, <laughs> in my mind, you know, I don't mind having the real close together because then they get to be good friends for each other. And I get to go out and work and have somebody come in and help. You know, I had that kind of figured out. In my so we started our practice in Wellsville, Ohio, which was a little Ohio town on the uh, Ohio on the river. And so I thought, well, you know, here we are. Let's do it. And so I had four children in four years, which made sense to me. And the women who I was taking care of in town, who, you know, this is before birth control pill or anything like that. But they would say to me, we think you above all people would know how not to have babies. And my response to that was, don't you think I maybe want to have babies? And they, what? <laughs> they had no idea that they had really had some choice over whether they did or not. But it was right when we started our practice. And so the, my children have grown up with me being a doctor. And they, like I did, my mother was a doctor. I was, so what? She's a doctor. And, and it worked out, you know, it worked out very nicely because actually my kids like each other. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to, Later on, I had the four while we were in Ohio, but when we came to Phoenix, I had the last two. So, you know, you have choice. You do what you want to, what you, what, not just what you want to do. You do what your soul is calling you to do. And there's a difference. How did the balance work for you there with your career and being a mom? Well, I was... All through my life, I've been blessed with what I call human angels. Hmm. When I was a kid, I had Aya. She was, you know, totally ignorant. She couldn't read or write. But boy, she was a whole bucket full of love. And she understood what I was going through because I was dyslexic and I was having all these troubles. But she could just incorporate me under her chadar and we... You know, it was something that was very safe and a very pla good place. So it was the ability to get through the hard times because I knew that there was love at home. I mean, for me, it was I could reach into that armful of, of love, which is this old chadar, which a smell of pawn and other things, but it was just fire. <laughs> yeah. The pawn smell, I'm addicted to it. <laughs> I can smell that and I'm like, oh, home. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it really is true. And that old hookah, you know, it was part of, of what life was and, and home was and school was a disaster, but, you know, it balanced itself out, and my mother was it was amazing. So for me, I needed to have that extra person to help with the raising of the of the children. So when I had the first four, we had Mrs. Kane. Mrs. Kane was when we moved to Wellsville. She lived two houses behind us in, in the house, but 
and she was just in her late 70s and she came over to our house she was a german lady and she came over to our house and she said to me well i and i was pregnant after we she said to me you know i'd like to help you so may i you know she offered her services as taking care of the home and and i'm telling you if you have a german lady taking care of your house that's a clean house <laughs> just beautifully you know and so through the years well like like when i was doing my internship the the resident the chief resident in at, at that time he knew three things he knew first of all women didn't belong in medicine he knew i didn't belong in medicine he knew pregnant women really didn't belong in medicine so his job was to make it so awful for me that i would either die or, or i quit well that was about to happen and i knew that i wasn't going to let that to have this baby i was carrying so what he did was schedule me for surgery for the longest surgeries available at seven o'clock in the morning there was no way i could get any breakfast because the cafeteria didn't open until eight o'clock and so with this pregnancy and with the occasional upchucking mouth <laughs> with you know i was i was very vulnerable at that point but one thing i knew was that he wasn't going to get me out and he certainly wasn't going to damage this baby of mine and we were there for keeps and then the schedule started to change now i had no idea why my name which was always at the top of the list so that i'd get the longest surgeries began to change and that and the other intern's name got up there and mine was down at eight o'clock so i got breakfast but one morning at two o'clock in the morning i was called i was on my x-ray table and i was called i went out into into the hall to go down to the step you know to the answer the call and i saw lucille lucille was a little maid who was the maid for that that whole uh floor she had pulled a chair up to the blackboard and she was erasing my name at the top <laughs> and putting carl ferber's name up there putting me down here now <clears throat> if anybody but i had found her doing that she'd have lost her job yeah but here she was like this little angel coming along because she had <clears throat> she was watching me go through this pregnancy and she watches was watching what was going on in her floor so she steps up so in my life there have been so many people who have when the when the time has come for for me to help to be helped they've done it and you know the beautiful thing about this baby that i was carrying he became an orthopedic surgeon he's the one that went but here i was when the 
Residents is trying to get rid of us. I'm hanging on with my teeth that this is going to happen. And he decides to become an orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> you know, and isn't life wonderful? <laughs> so did all of your kids end up going into the medical field? No, but I have four of them that did. Wow. I have grandkids that did. I have a, a, a great now, a granddaughter who uh, she and her husband, he's a gerontologist and she's a pediatrician and they just had a baby. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, so the, pro the process goes on. It's amazing. Life is wonderful. Was your sister a doctor as well in the medical no, field? No, my mother, my mother wanted her to be. She says, I ah, no, I don't <laughs> want to be. She was a great nurse. She was just a really good nurse. And so she, you know, she, she said, I'm not, I, I no, I don't, I don't want to, you, you guys do that stuff. I <laughs> I'm also realizing that maybe only a year or so after, I guess, before you were born was when women got the right to vote. So it's really special the way that these women were the ones helping you when you were working in the hospital. And it's such a beautiful story of women supporting other women. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, which I think is so important, you know, because we've talked in recent years about like women being pitted against each other or not supporting each other. And I do think that we can be each other's strongest angels, just as you're describing. Right, right. Yeah, you know, you feminist. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a good word. It is. It all keeps coming back to manifesting. Yeah. Yeah. And femifesting. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about this amazing chance encounter you've had with Gandhi. Do you think you can tell us a little bit about that story? Sure. I was 10 years old and we were leaving India to go come back to the States because every seven and a half years, my parents got a furlough so they could come back home and you know, get reacquainted with their families and all of that. So we were leaving India and I was really unhappy. We were in the train going from Roorkee down to Bombay and, and I didn't want to be leaving India, but you know, I was 10 years old and this is the way it was. And, and we were on the train and I had my face almost plastered against the window and as the train began to slow down as we came into a, a station. And there in India, there are lots of people around all the time. So there was a big crowd around, but this was a crowd that was, seemed more structured or something, and they were all chanting something. And uh, so I was listening to them, and it was the chant was Gandhiji, Gandhiji. And then I saw him at the head of the group, uh, in front of the whole group of people that were coming past the train window and he was in his dhoti and his larki and he was walking along and a little girl was reaching up to hand him a flower and he was reaching down to take that flower and when he lifted his face up his eyes and my eyes connected. I was 10 and I couldn't I can't tell you what happened. I can't explain it to anybody. I only could explain it to myself. I knew 
that there was a love connection there, that something happened. It was that Gandhi's ability to reach, because I was hurting. I didn't want to leave India. I was, but he, but he was feeling that or something. Anyway, there was a real connection and it manifested later on about 30 years later during the partition when Gandhi was talking to the people and, and working with them and so on. Well, my parents were doing the same thing. They had a little medical, it was a Jeep that they had taking to the, the camps where all of this horrible, sad, sad tearing apart of the whole country was happening. And so they, they would come to the camps and help the people that needed help and so on. And then my dad and Gandhi would speak from the same platform to the people. And this white man up there with Gandhi was a good way of sort of helping people understand that they're, you know, we are true. Well, true, I don't know what they understood, but they got something. So enough so that when my when Gandhi gave my mother a cashmere a blue cashmere shawl, and he gave my dad a punipat jack a blanket, so it was that kind of a friendship which you can do in places like India, where you understand that this is a connection that is important. And I think it started when I saw Gandhi when I was 10. Wow. So, you know, I, I think life, that's what's the beautiful thing about life and love is that they, they are energy and energy has to move and it has to grow. And if anything stops it and blocks it, it dies. Hmm. So if we've got an energy that is leading us like you guys you're doing what you're doing because you know that there's some messages that need to get out mm. and you're in a position you're like 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 my little lucille in the when i was an intern you know lucille was the angel you guys are bringing this word these words these words to the world in a way that no one else can take your place. You've got to do it yourself. It's like this huge jigsaw puzzle, and every one of us is this, a, a piece in it. And no one else can fit that piece. I've tried putting another piece in, you know. It doesn't work. <laughs> Each one fits in the special place that it has. Not, nothing else can fit there. No one else can take your place or mine. And if you have a thousand piece puzzle and you get it all put together and there's one piece missing, you drive yourself crazy trying to find that one piece to fit in that one place. You know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. that's how important each one of us are. 
Thank you for saying that. And that I think that's so important because, you know, we're both actors and typically we talk to entertainers on this podcast. And one of the things that you've brought up is manifestation. And that's something that a lot of actors work with and femifesting as you were talking about. How do you think that people can do that effectively and cultivate this love and positive energy into their lives? The first thing they have to do is learn to love themselves. And it's the thing that my I told my son, Carl, he had to be in touch with the physician within the patient. So mm-hmm. that means that the patient had to accept the fact that he was or she was the one who made the decisions about how this healing was going to happen. Because the orthopedic surgeon or the surgeon of any kind could do the work that they need to do and and tell you what he thought or that she thought they sh- you should continue with. But if you don't listen to it, if you don't hear it, you, you're not going to do it. And Or maybe you will just, you know, who knows what you'll do. I have these five L's that, that kind of a few years back kind of helped me explain some of the things that I was talking about. And the five L's are the first, are, the first one is life. Life by itself can't do anything. It's like the little seed in the pyramid that has been there for 5,000 years and it hasn't done anything until love in the form of water and sunshine and so on softens the shell and it can open up and it could grow. So life and love, like sperm and ovum, are they need each other. One can't really begin to live until the uh, until it meets the other one. So the the life and love are integral to each other. The first the, the third L then is laughter. Laughter without love is is just mean. It's cruel. It tears families apart. It it tears countries apart. It's just, but laughter with love is joy and happiness. And the fourth is labor. Labor without love is drudgery. Oh, I gotta go to work. Too many diapers. This is just too hard, you know. But labor with love is bliss. And you work twice as hard or five times as hard because what you're doing makes your heart sing. It's the, it's, it's bliss. It's, it's really, this is why you girls, you young women, excuse me. It's why you're doing what you're doing. You know, you have to do it and you put more work into it than you would with the anyway so that drudgery becomes bliss and the fifth l is listening listening without love is empty sound you know you can hear it all and and not hear it at all you know mm. you can listen to it but you don't hear it but when you do hear it it's understanding 
Listening without love is empty sound, clanging gong, that kind of stuff. But with love, it's understanding. So for me, a few years back, this helped me just kind of put things into context with what was happening in life and around me and so on. And sometimes it helps to have some structure with which to, on which to build. Well, Dr. Gladys, I think it's time, Lauren, do you not agree to get into the DM questions? Yes, 100%. So first off, you've been around for 102 years. We want to hear about, do you have any healthy habits or a morning routine that allows you to have been here for these 102 years and to be the best version of yourself? Well, you know, I get up in the morning and I stretch and I say my prayers and I, you know, do other things and <laughs> go down and have my cough, one cup of coffee and I have usually raisin bran and, and prunes and, you know, just <laughs> stuff like that. And then I start my day depending on what's happening. And for me right now, since this book has come out, it's awesome what's happening. I'm talking to you around the world. I was talking to a, a man from Cambodia the other day. I was talking to people from Australia. You know, it's just absolute to have lived this long and to be able to make these contacts. Life is a wow. It's mm. it, it, it totally amazes me, you know, and the fact that I can still walk around in my with with my walker and go up and down my steps, it, and and I have children that have decided that they one of them, my son Bob, is here now. He's a humanistic psychology person, but when he was three, he came into the house and he says to me. I know something, Mama. And I says, what's that, Bobby? He says, if I make a friend and he makes a friend and he makes a friend, it's going to go all around the world and come back to me. Of course, he's a psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> and then my uh, second son, who also, now Bob will be leaving within a couple of weeks to go back to his home, human potential center. And my son, John, who is a retired Presbyterian minister will come in and be here with me. You know, I mean, these are these angels these are talking about. And when he was seven, he came in one time and he says to me, I wish Jesus was here. And I said, well, so do I, but why, why do you? And he says, cause I have questions. And I says, okay, maybe I can help you. He says, you don't have the answers. And I says, well, try me, maybe I do. So he says, okay, how can God be if he never got started? And I said, well, <laughs> okay, maybe it's like a circle. It doesn't have a beginning or an end. He says, I knew you didn't have the answers. He goes, oh. But he became a Presbyterian minister, you know? Wow. It's that kind of listening to what the kids are saying and what they really came in to do. And I think each one of us 
have come in for a special place like that big jigsaw puzzle to do what it is that we have come in to do. And that to me is, is a wow. Yeah, that's beautiful. So can you please tell us if you can recall any funny, wild, intriguing, or inspirational message that you've received on Instagram or email or, or any, any form? Oh, we've used, I've had so many delightful messages that have come from around the world. I don't know how to, Bob, can you think of any? Appreciation for the, you know, the messages in your book have been really inspirational to you. Yeah. The feeling that you can provide something of, of importance that changes other people's lives. That's, that's a big thing. And in fact, related to that, I would say that one of the things that you do regularly every morning is you talk uh, on the phone to the executive director of your, your nonprofit foundation, right? because that, that links you in with your juice, with your excitement for the day, and that gets you excited for the rest of the day. See how good it is to have it. Amazing. Brilliant. <laughs> So being, being able to be linked in with one's purpose and juice in the morning, I would say would be a really fantastic way to live a long time. <laughs> Your personal spokesperson. <laughs> He's the one who knew he could make a friend and make a friend and make a friend. Yeah. <laughs> I guess hit. you know that you did a good job as a mother if somebody can um, repeat back to you <laughs> your morning routine. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess the best way to finish on today's conversation would be with our DM of the week, which asks, if you could change one decision that you made in your life, what would it be? Well, I don't know because each one that I've, the difficult ones, the really hard ones, I don't like that. I, going through them, the illnesses and, and the things that I've done. But each one of them has taught me something that I wouldn't have learned if I had lived through them. Because, see, I think there's a difference. We tell people, oh, just get over it. You don't just get over stuff. You know, you get, it, it gets some stuck somewhere in your psyche and it's 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 a it's, it's a painful thing it's called ambiguous loss or these are things like my my dyslexia i i pushed that down so that i actually didn't even accept my voice although i was speaking it and i was believed it and all of that but i was so damaged by the dyslexic problem and having to read first grade twice and being a class dummy and all of that stuff. But the fun thing about that is that when we started the American Holistic Medical Association, there was a time when there were 10 of us sitting around a table and we realized of the 10 of us, six of us were severely dyslexic. And we thought that's why we actually needed to find an alternative way of looking at illness mm. because 
I don't know how I learned to read because those letters just went all over the page. But somehow I found a way, and, and that's what the other uh, doctors around the table were saying. They didn't know how they learned to read, but they learned. And mm. it's that kind of a, of a of damage that is happens to us if we live through it we can find the answers if we try to get over it we bury it and we don't get the answers and we're damaged and then we get into dark places that we don't understand and because they never maybe really you know those dark corners in the house that have never been looked at so it's that kind of, of understanding that these things that happen to us that are so hard to live with need to be lived with because if they're just gotten over they damage us and then we have to really dig to <laughs> get the answers that we need to have if you if you could kuch in some of the things that happen to you it really, really helps. Well, I think you certainly proved everyone wrong, whoever thought that you were the class dummy. And we are so grateful for all of the wisdom you shared on today's episode. Thank you. Thank you. I bet Paris is pretty right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's really, really hot right now. And I've there's no air conditioning, which is something that I'm learning to live with. <laughs> <laughs> Big change from Los Angeles, for sure. <laughs> Dr. Gladys, could you please tell our listeners where they can buy your book and find you on Instagram? GladysMcGarry.com. Thank you. I got an echo. <laughs> and, and Be Glad MD. Be Glad MD. There's just another one of those angels in the background. <laughs> Absolutely. She's got six of them. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time today. It was truly such a privilege to get to hear everything that you had to offer us. And look up the, the Village for Living Medicine, too, because there's a lot of work that's being done in that area, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, done. Right. thank you so much. Thank you. So nice to talk to you. So glad to talk to you. Thank you. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Damsels in the DMs. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and send us your DMs because we do love reading your DMs. And they're super helpful. And we'll post the schedule of people that we have coming on. And if there's anybody who you would like us to have on, please let us know and let us know what you'd like to hear from them. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Damsels in the DMs. Until next time. It's going down in the DMs. Bye. DMs, DMs, yeah, we see them. Yeah, we read them. DMs, DMs, we don't need them. We just leave them. Please. Yeah. It's going down in the DMs. Bye. 
thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.